Welcome to The Politics Guys, the place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good, more or less okay in this crazy week. Uh, you know, Jay, before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know that we recently have moved from Audio Boom, which has been hosting the show for the last, uh, I don't know, like 14 months or so, over to uh, Libsyn for hosting. And from everything I can see, everything I've heard, the move went off without a hitch, which I was pleasantly surprised by. Uh, but if you've run into any issues or, you know, any kind of weirdness with getting the show, please let us know either by emailing us at mail at politicsguys.com or messaging us on our Facebook page. And that, of course, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Now, the main reason we moved to Libsyn is that we think they're going to be able to help us reach a larger audience. And, you know, some people say, well, size doesn't matter. Well, it does if you're trying to keep a podcast financially sustainable. And so one thing we really appreciate is if you could take this this super, super short survey about the show. Uh, this is going to be a huge help to Libsyn in helping us expand our reach. And so it's really important to us. Uh, I've seen the survey and it will literally take you no more than a minute. This is like a 30-second survey sort of thing. So super quick and easy. You can find it at survey.libsyn.com slash politicsguys. That's survey.libsyn.com slash politicsguys. And I'll also put that in the show notes as well. So thanks very much in advance for doing that. We really appreciate it. All right. On to our first Story today, you know, I, I thought we'd open with President Trump's announcement calling off the North Korea summit meeting scheduled for June 12th in Singapore. In his letter to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un informing him of the decision, Trump wrote that tremendous anger and open hostility on the part of North Korea was the reason for the decision to cancel the meeting. And while the president indicated that this was a great loss for the world and for North Korea in particular, and he also expressed the hope that there could be a future meeting, he told Kim, you talk about nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. And so that's where things stood until, well, Friday evening, when the president tweeted, we're having very productive truck talks with North Korea about reinstating the summit, which, if it does happen, will likely remain in Singapore on the same date, June 12th, and, if necessary, will be extended beyond that date. <sighs> so, Jay, what do you make of all this? He's, he's dealing. I um, guess so. No, I, I think the, the, the part you left out was that uh, after uh, Trump's, uh, with, well, pseudo with withdrawal after Trump's letter, uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, made a statement, or actually I said that the, the Koreans made a statement that they're still willing to talk and still willing to, to meet and so forth. Um, I, to some extent, I mean, this, this is what a lot of people who voted for Trump, um, and even those who didn't vote for Trump, uh, hope to see, I mean, the, the Wheeler dealer, the guy who, who can negotiate a better deal. Um, and it's it's unusual that you see it at this level, um, you know, when talking about international summits, you know, this is more just getting up at the table, walking out, and then the guy grabs him, ah, come on, come on, you know, it's, uh, so I'm, I think it's it's fascinating, and uh, it, it's it's actually a little fun to watch. Um, 
uh, I, I think it's important if we're going to go into any sort of summit or, or actual talks with the North Koreans uh, that you have this ability to just get up and walk away. Um, my sense is past administrations did not have that. It was just a matter of what else can we do to to um, uh, appease the North Koreans. And I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, famously back in, in the Clinton era, there was the, uh, you know, dance with uh, Madeleine Albright with uh, Kim Sr., um, there was the, um, he wanted the autograph basketball I and mean, we kind of basketball, I mean, it was just sort of this silly sort of, sort of, uh, uh obsequience almost. Uh, and I, I think this is, this is good. Um, there's also probably stuff going on that we don't know about. It's almost certainly stuff going on that we don't know about, uh, in terms of, of the Chinese, uh, involvement and, and moving, uh, the, the, the North Koreans, back to the table, as well as uh, involvement from the South Koreans. So we don't really know how all those pieces are, are, are fitting in yet. Um, but I think it's, it's good and healthy that you've got a president who's willing to say, I'll walk away if I have to. Um, now, setting aside sort of the whole, you know, my button's bigger than yours, uh, it, it's still, he's, he sends a message and, and uh, Kim seems to, to receive that message. Yeah, see, I, I see it very differently. I see this as once again Donald Trump being uh, a, an incompetent, uh, incompetent uh, uh, proponent of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, a couple of things here I'll point out. Number one, this is yet another example of horrifically bad message discipline in top White House people. First, you have Bolton making those comments about the Libya model, which then Trump walks back a few days later. And then Pence goes on Fox News talking about the Libya model again. And then North Korea calls Pence a political dummy who made ignorant and stupid remarks and so forth. I mean, this is amateur hour type stuff. And secondly, uh, I think the fact that the North Koreans were not responding to phone calls, were not showing up to these pre-meeting sort of things, this is why you do all of this careful, meticulous, boring spade work behind the scenes so you don't have this, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. This is just the, this is just the game that couldn't shoot straight. I don't think this is fun or good or anything. Well, I'll say this. I think that certainly taking a hard line and also talking are good things. But once again, Donald Trump has, has shown just the in, incredible limits of his knowledge about how to conduct successful foreign policy. And this has just been a, this has just been a, a semi-disaster. I think. We'll wait. We'll wait and see. But I, I, again, my sense is um, so far so good, right? I mean, we've what no. what Kim what Kim wants is this summit. He wants to have world recognition uh, that he is a serious player and that the United States president is willing to sit down with him. He hasn't gotten that yet, uh, and and Trump is right to hold out on. Look, what you need to do is start dismantling your nuclear facilities. Uh, and Trump sort of, again, backtracked a little bit. I mean, initially it was, uh, you've got to take this all apart uh, immediately. And then, of course, you know, this isn't something that can be just taken apart immediately. So he said, all right, I'll give you some time. Um, and and then the North Koreans did blow up something. We don't, we don't know that it was <laughs> useful or anything like that. But I mean, they've returned hostages. Uh, they've they've blown up something, and and we're having this this dialogue. Yeah, they had some sort of uh, what they claim to be uh, a uh, nuclear test facility, right? And they did um, some implosion there, but they didn't allow right. anyone to see it, and so forth. Right. And so, so we don't yeah, really know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, and I, and I think we we obviously should be highly skeptical. Um, 
uh, of this. Uh, but but I think that's that's sort of the, the whole point to me in, in the way Trump has handles this. This isn't like a normal negotiating partner. Uh, this isn't like we're negotiating something with France. Uh, this is <laughs> this is a, uh, a, a a player who is who is wily, who is who is dishonest, who is sneaky, who is going to do this sort of thing. Uh, and, and to some extent, you know, maybe, um, I, I, I will, I will go back to the, uh, you know, team America, uh, uh, uh sort of, sort of idea. And again, if it's a family show, I won't, uh, spell it all out, but it's that when you're dealing with, with hardliners, sometimes you, you need your own hardliner. Um, sure, and I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that part of it. I'm just saying that. Uh, so I'm not disagreeing with the idea that we needed to take a hardline stance in response to the the nuclear testing that's taken place over the last year. I absolutely agree with that. I think the the sanctions was a good approach, and I've said from the beginning that I think that some sort of negotiations that we're going to have to enter into some, and it's a, it's a good and a positive step. What I'm, what I take issue with is the incompetence of the Trump administration in actually carrying out this plan. Okay. I, and I get, maybe we just see it differently. I see this as, uh, he is carrying out the plan, but I mean, we, and again, we don't, we don't know yet because we don't know the final. Well, um, let me ask you this then. So you don't see a problem where, Bolton talks about the Libya model, then Trump has to walk it back, and then a few days later, Pence mentions the Libya model again. I mean, doesn't that seem to be like maybe less than optimal message discipline? Uh, if we're trying to do the messaging to the American people, yeah. Uh, if we're trying to to uh, get the message across to Kim, uh, then no. But why would you, you know, why would you say that to Kim, knowing what kind of response you'd likely get? I mean, what's the what's the upside to saying Libya model? No, we'll guarantee your safety. Libya model. That doesn't. I mean, l- let me ask you this, Jay. Are you saying that this has been carried out by the Trump administration with absolute perfection? That this has just been a no, like no, a no. Dream? I, I, I'm not saying it's not saying absolute perfection. Uh, but of I course. certainly can see, I, I, but pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, okay. I, I could, no, I, I would say because look, this is. Um, it, it's, you know, you ever watched any cop shows, you know, they have the good cop, bad cop kind of routine. I, I mean, think you are, you, you are. It's like, there is <laughs> no, here's the, here's the thing. In a lot of, in a lot of instances, I will say Trump is in, in over his head. He's out of his depth. Uh, he's flailing. Um, but, but in, in, in this kind of thing, I, you know, maybe that's what you do. You send Bolton out, you send, um, uh, Pence out to make the, uh, Libyan comments, um, you know, and then Trump comes back and he's the good cop. And then, well, all wow. right, well, maybe we can still talk. I, you know, I, I, you're, you're familiar with Occam's razor. I know you are, right, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, and so obviously the simplest explanation for all this is that they just haven't coordinated things well and they just say things when they want to say them. I mean, you could suggest that he's playing 12 dimensional chess with this whole thing, but I will, I will stick with Occam's razor on this and just say, given the long history of, of uh, not very well thought out statements and horrible message discipline from this administration, that this is just another example of that and not them being super extra crafty. Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to actually uh, domestic affairs. We don't get it. It seems like we haven't had a chance to talk about a whole lot of domestic policy between, you know, Korea and Russian investigations. I'm kind of excited this week. We have a lot of that. Um, 
You know, but early this week, a bipartisan majority in the House passed a major rollback of the 2010 Dodd-Frank law, which imposed a greater regulation on the financial sector that was after the 2008 financial crisis. And this followed the Senate's bipartisan approval of the, the same measure, essentially, uh, with uh, had, I believe, 17 Democrats who joined Republicans. So this was not just like bipartisan, meaning one or two. This was like really bipartisan. Now, the new law does some reasonable stuff, I, I would say. For instance, it provides regulatory relief for smaller financial institutions, which I said from the beginning was a good thing. But here's where I have, and a lot of liberals have a problem with it. It also helps out larger institutions by subjecting them to less strict scrutiny, like eliminating these yearly stress tests to make sure that they can survive a future financial crisis. And we're going to have future financial crises. And, you know, I feel compelled to point out here that Dodd-Frank certainly imperfect, like all major legislation. But it was a small positive exception to decades of financial system deregulation. And this was, you know, promoted by both Democratic and Republican presidents and Congresses, which proves once again, at least to me, uh, that giving Wall Street what it wants is one of the few things that Democratic and Republican lawmakers are able to agree on. And that also makes perfect sense to me, considering the massive amounts of money the financial sector spends on campaign contributions and on lobbying. You take a look, go to OpenSecrets.org. They far outpace any other sector. I mean, it's not even close. And of course, oh, wait, oh, and all, all this right, is wait, happening. All this is happening at a time when the financial sector is enjoying record profits. And, you know, I'm I'm disappointed by this, but I've accepted that it's essentially a Wall Street government. So, but so I'm not surprised. But you know, I, I guess I'm a little disappointed. Now, Jay, I know your thoughts on this are a little bit different. Well, I'd say first of all, I mean, as as I've always said, if you want to keep money out of politics, keep politics out of money. Um, so, I mean, it's no surprise that that uh, Wall Street firms as uh, one of the and banks is one of the most highly regulated industries. Uh, have the most at stake and are therefore pl uh, uh, putting the most into uh, campaign coffers of, of both parties. Uh, I think that's that's no surprise. And I think taking steps uh, away from the, the over-regulation is going to um, maybe change that a little bit. Although here's the thing, they're still going to pay a lot of money because it's, it's sort of, sort of protection money uh, as, uh, you know, if you will, um, uh, from any future um, new regulations. Uh, you keep keep in mind they they weren't real pleased about um, your whole favorite uh, agency. Um, CFPB, <laughs> sure. Was, it was designed to uh, essentially just take money from them. No, um, not at all. That's unfair. But go ahead. But well, endless with this, where the awards went back, they came from the banks and they went back to the government. Um, but but setting that aside, I think the the Dodd Frank rollback is is great stuff. Uh, it, it is not everything that Trump wanted, at least not everything he says he wanted. And I'm not I'm not entirely sure he had a you know full grasp of everything he wanted or everything was in there. Um, but it's it's to me a big piece of of moving away from uh, I think what you're describing is you know the crony capitalism. Uh, one of the the biggest drivers and sort of the soft crony capitalism is uh, overregulation. I mean, what it does is that it allows the big players who can absorb the cost of that regulation to to expand and and, and uh, thrive at the um, 
uh, to the detriment of of smaller institutions that can't for, uh, afford that kind of regulation uh, also serves as a big barrier of entry into the market. Uh, so by, by 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 loosening up the rules on on the smaller banks, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a pro-competitive um, uh, move uh, that's going to be good for uh, the 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 system and good for consumers. And and we're we're agreed on that part of it. You know, certainly okay. I and and I also take your point. You and I would disagree a little bit, but I take your point that regulation. You know that that it is a highly regulated industry and so forth. And I think here's where maybe we differ, I don't know. But what makes to me, and what a lot of people on the left would say, and in fact, some people on the right would say, what makes the financial sector unique is that it is so big and so important that bailouts are inevitable. It wouldn't matter if Congress passed a dozen laws saying we will not bail out the financial sector. If something like 2008 happened again, they would bail out the financial sector because it's just too important. And so essentially then, given that that is just a fact, because Congress is not going to sit by, the president's not going to sit by and let the whole financial system collapse. It's just not going to happen. So given that, you have essentially two options. Number one, you can put limits on growth so that firms can't get so big that their failure, limits on growth and connectedness so that they can't take down the rest of the system if they fail. Or, there already are some of those. There are some. Or you can put more regulations on, but you can't just say, well, we promise we won't reg- we won't bail them out, but also we're going to deregulate. This was the playbook of the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s that failed colossally and stuck to taxpayers with huge bills and had major negative impacts on economic, economic growth. And so that's what I'm concerned about having happen again. And that's why I think that we're, we're just making a huge mistake in, in going back to that. Again, not entirely. Clearly, I think Dodd, Dodd-Flank was, was flawed in not making that distinction between smaller and larger institutions and being a little one-size-fit-all. But especially things like eliminating yearly stress tests, I think that's a horrible idea. Well, I, I mean, look— First of all, as far as taxpayer cost, I agree the government, it, it's a bad place to be uh, having to bail out or uh, inject uh, cash into the system, which is which is the, the problem we had in 2008. It was a lack of liquidity. Um, but it's it's helpful to remember all of those, those TARP uh, payments uh, were repaid uh, on time and, and with interest. Um, so, so that worked. Again, it's not something I'd, I'd like to see. It's not something advisable. But what I'm saying is the, that safety net uh, worked. Now, if you're going to say there was still great harm done to the economy because of, of, of this, we can differ on what caused, what caused the, uh, uh, the 2008 meltdown. Um, uh, you know, but, uh, and again, I, I would make the case there was a lot of push to, uh, uh, to make loans that shouldn't have been made. Um, uh, and that there were market forces involved, and there are also sure. government forces and, and involved. Those loans, those loans could be made because of because of the deregulated system. And they could have been they they were also made. Uh, they could be made because there was a federal backstop in, in the and form that, of and, uh, right. And that's that's Freddie not going anywhere. May. That's not going anywhere. That's what I, that's my point. Is that <laughs> my point is that there's always going to be a federal backstop for the financial industry. They're always going to get bailed out, and that's just. That's just a, a fact. You can't change that. 
Because again, nobody sure is going sure to. You can. You can. No. You could say no. 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 You can simply say, um, "Hey, hey, bank, we're not going to guarantee these mortgages." Um, and and right. the bank okay. will be more circumspect about which mortgages it it makes. Sure, I see what you're saying, and yeah, and in that sense, you're correct. I'm talking at more of a macro level, basically saying that if if there is systemic bad decision making, overly uh, incautious risk taking, and the system collapses, it's going to get bailed out. And in the 2008 crisis, the the problem was uh, originally they thought they had a, a good plan for spreading the risk. Uh, on those mortgages in terms of they could securitize it and sort of chop it up and all kinds of different people could buy in. Uh, the problem was exactly that. It, it spread the risk to to everybody, uh, meaning that it was a, a bigger problem. So, I mean, I, I could see, I think, reasonable regulations on, on that sort of behavior. Um, and I think those are still in place uh, with, with what's going to happen as far as uh, and, and again, those are things a lot of times the SEC could do by rule, I would think, with uh, the mortgage securitization stuff. Um, but regardless, I, I, you know, I, I think uh, you would agree it's, it's, it's healthy that we've got some kind of bipartisan, bipartisan agreement on something, right? Well, I, I would agree, again, that, that the fact that there is so much bipartisan agreement on this shows to me the pernicious influence of uh, uh, campaign <laughs> money. No, I mean, I, serious. I mean, I think if that's it's, if it's a part if it's a partisan vote, then it's it's a uh, uh, crass polarization, and we can't get anything done. If if, the, if it's bipartisan, then it's no, not at all. I mean, in, in certain areas, it would it would depend. I mean, I wouldn't want to make any blanket statements about that. Certainly, but I mean, I think that uh, it's it's clear to me. It's been clear to me for years how uh, money influences elections. And I'm not saying that members of Congress are corrupt. There certainly are some who are corrupt. But I think it's more a case is this is just a survival strategy. If you don't raise millions of dollars, you're just not going to you know, retain your seat and you go where the money is. And that's where the money is. And so things get to be bent in that direction. And so I'm all for, you know, you went, I mean, you mentioned it before. How do you get the money out of politics? You, or at least it, it being a, a good thing, you and I would differ as to how you do that sort of thing, certainly. But I think even you and you know you would be willing to admit that. Sure, sure. I, I I would I would rather we didn't have these these huge inflows of cash coming in. I think it's not good for the system. Um, but again, I already kind of pitched my uh, my solution. But for you that. know, I, I want to say before we move on, on a related point, it it wasn't always like this. I mean, with the role of finance in society. I mean, even even 30, 40 years ago, and and now you look and you say that finance is where really the largest share of what you might call our best and brightest are going. I mean, you take a look at where Ivy League graduates are going, the most popular thing is going into finance as opposed to the real economy where they're making things and inventing things and so forth. And, and you know, I think this is this is a sign of a system that's that's kind of fundamentally lost its way uh, in a very in a very real sense. And I don't think that's a partisan point to make. I just think that's, you know, that's just a point about uh, just how society is going and how our system is set up. So, well, I have, I have one really quick observation just just to like. Uh, stick sure. it to you. Um, you know who you sound a lot like? Who's that? A guy a guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Um, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> you know how I feel about Jefferson. Just, exactly. And I'm just throwing that out there. That there, there again, there was, you know, back uh, back in the day, uh, or, or Andrew Jackson, if you prefer. Um, I would not, actually. <laughs> 
back back in the day, that was was one of the core debates at, at, at you know in the early days of of the republic was the influence uh, of of centralized banking uh, and, and of course the Jeffersonians Jacksonians. Uh, believed very much uh, they were anti-bank, uh, partly because it's, uh, well, I mean, it, it's a long story to go into, but uh, there were farmers, planters, and there was a sort of a natural antipathy um, uh, because they depend on banks to get funding uh, before the crop comes in and so forth. Uh, and, and Jefferson also saw it kind of as you do, as, as almost an independence uh, thing. If, if uh, you're reliant on these these big money uh, players, you are necessarily sacrificing some of your liberty, and also the idea that 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 there was there was something that was somehow uh, dishonest. Uh, it wasn't sort of you weren't creating something. It was just trading paper back and forth, uh, which seemed to him um, uh, and many. Uh, to be sort of a, a dishonest way of, of making yeah. a living. And no, it's, uh, I mean, as, it's as, a opposed, as opposed to like owning people and having them, uh, you know, plant and, and your fields for you. But, um, well, you know, it's a, ma- it's a matter yeah. of degree. It's a matter of degree. And I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not nearly as far over on that spectrum as, as people like Jefferson or Jackson were. You know, I identify a lot more with Hamilton's view on that sort of thing. But it's it, what I'm saying is it's gone to a point where Hamilton it's. would have hated Dodd Frank. Well, see, I think you're, I think, well, you're wrong on a lot, but you're wrong on that because it's a matter of degree. Like with so many things, this isn't black and white categorizations. It's a matter, you take a look at the amount of, 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 of energy, the amount of our, you know, again, of our best and brightest, if you will, that have been sucked into this. It's, it's changed dramatically in the last 30, 40 years. It's, it's in entirely different from what it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even really the early 80s. And so that's what I object to. Not, not We need a finance system. By God, we absolutely do. But it's it's basically eating the entire system, and that's what I object to. And I'm, I'll make one quick last point, and we'll, we'll move on. And this, is, this isn't just messing with you. This is actually sub- substantive. Um, you know, if you look for the reasons of why has there been so much consolidation, I think one of the things you can look to is uh, the fact that the industry has become more and more regulated, particularly after things um, like the the SNL crisis uh, in the uh, the mid '80s, uh, the 1987 uh, stock market crash. Uh, there there have been more and more layers of regulation. A lot of them not not big pieces of legislation like Dodd Frank, but but more SEC kind of stuff. Um, and and also uh, stuff through the uh, uh, treasury and bank regulations that have have essentially forced a lot of these smaller banks that they just can't uh, compete. Uh, and they, the you know the rational thing is to merge, and you keep getting these in the search for greater safety. What you've gotten uh, are these these big uh, behemoths that you didn't have uh, where you had a, a broader broader financial landscape 34 years ago. Yeah. And again, on that, we, on that, we agree. Yeah. All right. uh, Before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. First, we have Mark who made a generous donation on PayPal. Uh, He wrote, uh, we're going through the backlash first predicted in 1964 with the Wallace run through Reagan, Gingrich, and Palin. I began with JFK and Rockefeller can live in that space as claimed the Clintons. We're really teetering now. Thanks for the balance. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks. Uh, Next, we have Patrick, our newest monthly sustaining supporter on Patreon, and we definitely appreciate that. Thank you, 
Patrick, and, and Patrick and all of you who were uh, Patreon supporters, you should, when you uh, pledge your support, you should be getting a message with instructions on how to subscribe to the supporters-only uh, after-show sort of bonus podcast. Uh, and if you're not, just, just let after us know. After hours. Yeah, there you go. After hours. The politics guys after hours. And so, like last week, Trey and I talked about the uh, Supreme Court ruling on sports betting. Uh, we talked about sort of the difference between reacting to things versus is deep thinking, uh, my skills as a designer, which are not great, uh, and also and the absolutely filthy TV show that gives me such great joy. There's other stuff like that, but it was a lot of fun, and so uh, you might want to check it out. And of course, when you do make a pledge of support, we'd love to include a message from you and the shout out. So feel free to pass it along. You can do that usually through uh, Patreon, PayPal, or just mail us at mail at politicsguys.com. And if you do want to be a supporter, just go to politicsguys.com slash support, or you can just forget the support part, click politicsguys.com, and you'll see a Patreon or PayPal link right there on the site. Thanks so much. All right, moving on in other legislative news. The House joined the Senate in passing so-called right-to-try legislation, which will allow people with life-threatening illnesses who've exhausted all other conventional treatments to bypass the FDA and gain access to experimental medications and treatments, assuming they can afford them, that is. Now, the bill was opposed by the FDA, well, sort of opposed by the FDA, and major patient advocacy groups, including the American Cancer Society, Cancer Action Network, Friends of Cancer Research, and the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Their objections centered around the fact that patients in these situations can already gain access to experimental treatments through an already existing FDA waiver program that approves over 99% of all requests. So the concern here is that by going around the FDA, patients that are already, you know, in dire straits might be exposed to costly, well, largely unvetted treatments that could actually cause them to die sooner. Although I should point out that this isn't like a free-for-all, like you'd say, I have this drug and anyone can try it. Treatments still have to have gotten through this initial phase of FDA approval to be considered for this new program. So uh, I... I think my, my position on this is pretty clear. I think this was an unnecessary sort of thing, and I'm not in favor of it. Jay, what do you think? I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Why not? Well, I, I think I, mean, I just I said why not, but go ahead. Well, no, I, I guess here's, here's why I'm perplexed. If the, if the FDA uh, approves 99% of these waivers, um, then, then why not allow that 1%? I mean, why, why, do we have to, why do we have to have FDA approval? We have to have FDA approval for exactly those reasons where people aren't taking things that would maybe cost a, a lot of money and could actually potentially make them die sooner. So I'm all in favor of not giving people treatments that make them die sooner. Well, I'm, I'm in favor of letting people make up their own minds about uh, their, their own health. And, uh, you know, if they are faced with a life-threatening condition— uh, they ought to be able to make their own choices. And, and, and again, if, if they wanted to take a chance on something, it may be risky and they understand the risks. Uh, but in, in these cases, necessarily the other risk is, uh, you are going to die in the short term. Uh, we're not, we're not talking about, um, uh, uh you know, sort of long-term type type thing. We're, we're talking about, you know, if we don't find a, a cure or a treatment uh, within a, a fairly short window, you're not going to be here anymore. 
Uh, I think it's it's a good thing. Um, whether legislation was needed or whether it could have been done by rule with the FDA, that's another question. Uh, obviously, this this arises out of the the situation in uh, Great Britain uh, with with uh, Baby Charlie, and and that I mean has to be really really troubling. Uh, where you know you had a uh, a family who had a, an infant who was was dying of a a rare condition. Um, you had uh, folks in in two different countries in Italy and also in the U.S. who were offering, hey, we can, we have an experimental treatment you can try, and, and the British government said, nah, you can't do it. Uh, I think that that really bothered a whole lot of uh, folks here in the U.S., especially right-to-life uh, types, and uh, this was the result. So I, I think it's, I think it's, look, if to me, to me, if that one percent uh, of people who would otherwise be rejected less get a chance 1%. to try something, less than one percent. Um, you know, then, then my God, let, let them do it. Then why go, I mean, why not just make this an, an FDA program? Why go around the FDA? Because another part of this, I, I, I failed to mention this, uh, my, my bad, is that this also means that the FDA is going to get less timely information on adverse effects and things like that. So, I mean, it seems to me that if this were the only concern, as opposed to just, you know, trying to work around the FDA, then you could just make this an FDA program. I don't know why they didn't do that. No, because my my guess is because the FDA uh, likes to have the the decision about uh, what they approve and what they don't approve. Right, but what I'm saying is that they could just that they could just written a law saying that if this has been through phase one of FDA approval, it's an automatic approval thing. But the same reporting, you know, what they did, but they didn't actually because it's not running through the FDA. And I think it's just so you, go ahead. So you'd be okay. You just want more reporting. Nah, you make it sound like a bad thing, but yeah, I think it's no, imp- no, no. I'm, okay. I'm, you know, I mean, I think it's important that there be very good information in terms of when uh, there are negative, adverse effects. I think the FDA should know about that right away. I think that's pretty important. So, so yeah, I think if, if I don't know that this is, I am sympathetic to the argument you point out, but I think you also understand the idea that there can be essentially, you know, snake oil salespeople to a certain sure. extent, and and this doesn't. Now, again, I said this isn't a wide open sort of thing, so it's not just like I can say I have this miracle it's not drug. Like, well, and, and it's also not like, you know, geez, I get these headaches sometimes. Uh, I want to try this completely un, unproven, un, untested uh, treatment that may kill me. It, it's a matter of you have you have three months to live. Um, you can either die in three months or you could try this treatment. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think the, if they let you a big part of the problem, I think, is that especially when you have people in this sort of situation, people who already I mean, we know people even in the best of situations, many people have a difficult time understanding medical science and statistics and risk reward type of things and so forth. And so you add in this enormously stressful sort of thing. And there's, of course, the potential for people to be, people and their families to be taken advantage of in just a disgusting sort of way. And, and there are folks who are going to try to do that, which is why we have safeguards in place. And I think they're important. Well, keep in mind, you also still have other safeguards in place in terms of, uh, you know, fraud. I mean, it's, you know, that, that sort of thing. I mean, as you said, these are, these are treatments that have already passed. Uh, phase one. So again, it's not it's not necessarily your your snake oil uh, salesman. These are uh, you know companies that have already invested uh, millions, you know probably tens of millions of dollars getting getting you know drugs or treatments to the phase where they they can can actually get to that trial. So 
Um, I, I think this is probably uh, a good thing if it allows uh, uh, those, um, you know, uh, some people to, to to have a chance, and it might even uh, speed the uh, rate of cure when when you when you get one of these things that maybe couldn't have been tried early, but maybe you see start seeing positive results. Uh, it, it might be uh, clear the path to get drugs uh, drugs approved faster, which is going to be. Uh, good for everybody. Yeah, which is which is why I think that kind of immediate reporting is important. So you know, I I get the sense really that if uh, we're not that far apart on this really, and and if you and I had been able to sit down and kind of hash this out, we would have come up with a with a, a alternative. That I think was even better than what Congress passed. Which if I, if only we were in charge. If yes. only we were in charge. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you know, before we get to Spygate and the Mueller investigations, yes, folks, we will get to that. Um, there's actually more domestic policy to talk about. It's been like a wonderful week for me in terms of that. The VA Mission Act, that $55 billion measure that Congress passed uh, with huge bipartisan majorities. I mean, this is 92 to 5 in the Senate, okay? So that's about as bipartisan as it gets. Now, the act that shores up the VA medical system, which, of course, has been under a microscope for I think it was that 2014 scandal where employees were found to have lied about wait times, that sort of thing. Um, now, in response to that scandal, Congress created this thing called the Choice Program, which allows veterans who live either more than 40 miles away from a VA facility or who would have to wait more than 30 days for an appointment to receive private care at VA expense. Now, this new bill, which President Trump is going to be signing into law in a few days, it cuts out these sort of hardline criteria and instead considers just in general distance to a VA facility, the length of a wait for an appointment, and also whether local, whether that, that closest VA treatment would be deficient compared to local private providers and other further away VA providers. Now, some people on the left, as well as government employee unions, say that this is a bad idea and what it's doing is essentially inexorably moving the VA system toward full privatization, which they argue is going to be more expensive and less accountable than the current system. And now the argument, before you, before you laugh, the argument right, about- well, too well, late. The, the argument about lower VA costs is actually backed up by a number of studies, including one done in 2014 by the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. And according to a 2017 RAND analysis, VA quality of care is on par with private care. So this, these aren't ridiculous arguments, is my point. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about this uh, VA Mission Act? Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, the arguments are maybe a little ridiculous, and I'll just point out why. Uh, of course, your costs are going to be lower when you're treating fewer people. I mean, that's sort of the the whole point is is that there was such a backlog, such a a backup that you weren't having people uh, treated in a timely manner. Um, so so of, of course uh, you're you're going to save money if if uh, stuff isn't getting done. Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, why? Again, it's it's sort of mind-boggling. If you got your veterans uh, who have who have served this country, why wouldn't you let them uh, choose their own health care? Um, so I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. Uh, long overdue. Uh, will it fix all the problems at the VA? No, but uh, it, it does introduce that sort of a bit of competitiveness uh, that can spur uh, change in a government organization. Yeah, you know, it's really an echo, I think, of the 
I mean, in a way, of the whole school choice debate, right? That yeah, idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, on the right, certainly, I understand the argument and, and that that it will create competition and will force the VA to, to be better and so forth, since there is an alternative. And, of course, on the left, and I'm a little more sympathetic to this argument, understandably so, is, is that what this is doing is just sucking more and more resources, potentially, out of the VA. And so it is going to be increasingly worse and worse and worse care. And that that is, I think, a very real and legitimate concern. Although I know when I said government employees, pri- they'll have the private private option to, uh, to take advantage of. Yeah. And then I think, so. well, I think, again, and that, that gets into a much larger discussion about public versus private op- option healthcare, which you and I differ uh, very much on, certainly, which is why, I mean, I, so I'm not as against this as, say, the government employee unions. But because uh, I do think that there still are legitimate issues with wait times, although that the, the VA has made some significant improvements. I would have preferred to see more money going directly into the VA as opposed to these private options. And I, I think that could have. So it's more a question of the balance. I think that something like the choice program makes sense for those extreme conditions. But I think this is just, uh, again, a case of going a little bit too far. All right. Well, again, man, you're just, oh. Well, you know, I, I, again, I, I, mean, I mean, I see very much a strong parallel between this and the last story we talked about, and that, that comes down to the ability of people to choose their own medical care. Right. And, and again, I, I don't think it's really a, a, as black and white of a thing like that. You know, it's just obviously a much more subtle thinker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, no, but I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely, in, in terms of that parallel. So, you know, Jay, I... I, I got to say, I, be, I, I put this story last. I, honestly, at this point, I don't even know where to start with the whole Spygate thing, but let, let me try, okay? All right. So <clears throat> we now know that the FBI used a confidential source to obtain information concerning potential ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. And we also know the name of the source, uh, Stefan uh, Halper, an emeritus professor at Cambridge who's been involved can but, I just point out one thing that I predicted almost to the day the uh, that when the name would be released and this would become public. Well, that's but go right. ahead. Very good, Jay. No, that's that, that's worth an interruption. And we know that this guy has been involved with uh, intelligence in a number of Republican administrations. We know that he approached at least three Trump campaign people to talk about foreign policy. And we all and we'll just go. Maybe goes beyond what we know, but I would say that the well, the president certainly and his allies have termed this Spygate and are to me hysterically claiming that it's the greatest witch hunt in American history, much bigger than Watergate and that, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Well, again, we'll get into this, but so meanwhile, the Justice Department is still reluctant to provide complete information about their informant and the nature of his work. The argument being that it will endanger other sources and damage intelligence relations with other countries. And, you know, even President Trump seems sort of sympathetic to this because, I mean, spokespeople have issued statements saying that the president understands the sensitive nature of this and the importance of protecting sources. And, of course, he could just unilaterally order the release of everything to the House committees, which he has chosen not to do. Now, Democrats are saying that the congressional push for all available information is basically an attempt by Trump partisans, particularly House Intelligence Committee Chair Devin Nunes, to assist the administration in smearing and discrediting the FBI in particular 
and intelligence services in general, which uh, a lot of times President Trump seems really on board with, though Again, I should point out that in the midst of his many, as usual, wild tweets this week, the president did indicate that it was the leadership of the FBI and not the rank and file who were engaged in a secret, massive conspiracy to destroy him, essentially. So it's something, I suppose. So, Jay, I'm sure that you don't exactly agree with me in all the particulars here, right? Well, no, here, here's the thing. And this is something where it's this is difficult to talk about. Um because we don't know what we don't know. And, and I know we both, both Mike and I both get, get heat, uh, uh, because why aren't we doing more about this? Why aren't we talking? And, and the reason is because there's stuff that we just don't know. I mean, usually our, our, um, uh, our MO is, is we have something which is a, you know, factual, uh, you know, we know what, what's the, you know, the, the, the bill was passed. The bill was not passed. Here's what was in it. And, and we can we can talk about it and how that worked out, who it benefits, who it doesn't and what's happened next. In this, there are a lot of moving parts that we just don't know about. Uh, and by Nestor, there's a lot of moving parts Congress apparently doesn't know about. Um, although I expect they they know more than uh, they're letting on right now. Um, so, you know, look, to, to, to dive deep into this, I, I mean, but but I will say, I, I think there's a tremendously important question on uh, when did the government approach uh, this source in England uh, and ask him to approach the, you know, the Trump uh, personnel who who made that request and when when was that request made uh, and why? Those are my three big questions. Uh, and it seems we can't get answers to that. And, and that's. I think what's troubling Nunez, and that's what's troubling a lot of Republicans. The, those shouldn't be difficult questions to ask. And I think, you know, if you look last week, Trump had the meeting with uh, intelligence officials of, look, how can we how can we work this out so that uh, Congress can get the information it's looking for, uh, while still protecting uh, information that needs to be protected. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think I think there's a way to do that. Uh, to me, again, as as an observer of these things. Um, I'm going to say I think the Justice Department has blinked. Uh, they they blinked uh, like probably two weeks ago, um, and and this is this is all going to come out. And uh, yeah, I I think you know then we'll we'll have more to talk about. But um, you know it's 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 you know I, I, the, yeah, the big thing is who who in the FBI made, made this request of uh, you know. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I agree in the sense that there's an awful lot we don't know. And I think we're so used to getting this information immediately. Uh, you know, I, I agree with this is this is a phrase you don't hear from me a whole lot. I agree with Mitch McConnell on this. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, the, the investigations are proper and it's just going to take time and I await their conclusions and so forth. And as you said, you know, that's in part why I think we're so hesitant to devote a whole lot of time to this, because there is so much we don't know. But that's, well, what, it's, it, that's not to say I'm not incredibly interested. Sure. I yeah, mean, well, of course. Yeah. I mean, how could you not written be? about this? Um, I'll, I'll throw out, uh, um, uh, again, Kim Strassel, uh, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, if you're, if you're on the right and looking for what's going, even if you're not on the right, looking for what's going on, um, that's some interesting stuff. And I'm sure you can point to some folks on the left. Well, I don't uh, want to do even, that though. Or even on the, even yeah, on the right. Yeah, exactly. I, so. I, I want to point to someone specific on the right who you and I both 
very much have admired for years, Jonah Goldberg, who in his column this week wrote, and it's worth quoting, uh, whatever happens with the Mueller investigation, whether or not there's any evidence or additional evidence, depending on your point of view, that the Trump campaign truly colluded with the Russians in the 2016 elections, we already know that the campaign wanted to collude with the Russians. Then later he says, the only reason I bring this up is that for many people, with the president at the top of the list, the mere suggestion that the Trump campaign would ever think of colluding with Russia is simultaneously a grave slander and an absurd conspiracy theory. It may not be true, but it's neither absurd nor a slander. And, and I wanted to get your take on that, Jay. I, I think he's right. And and look, I, I'm a big fan of Jonah Goldberg. Um, I think there is some sort of, I mean, Jonah Goldberg has been a never Trumper sort of from day one. Sure. Uh, and my sense is there is some, there is sort of some bad blood that goes back. Uh, you know, this is like New York stuff, you know, going back uh, uh, a while. Because um, I think in some of these these other his other posts or his other pieces, he's referred to sort of past doings of Trump and sort of the whole, you know, Trump history uh, again. Um, so look, I would say, look, Jonah's got a little bit of a, a Donald Trump uh, chip on his shoulder, but that doesn't mean he's wrong. Um, the other thing is, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't go as far as to say uh, this shows that uh, the Trump administration or the, the the Trump campaign wanted to collude uh, with the Russians. Uh, I think that's that's not an unreasonable conclusion that could be drawn from the evidence. But I I don't I don't see that yet. Well, it's certainly if we look at um, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, you know, he's not representative maybe the entire campaign. Now, at one point in the article, this kind of uh, uh, Jonah suggests, well, maybe we can use the Fredo defense, meaning uh, Fredo right. Corleone, just as he was just right. too too stupid, basically, and wanted to show that he's a big boy and can handle this yes. stuff, that sort of thing. But it, but Goldberg points out that you can't really say that about Manafort, uh, maybe not about Kushner, that sort of thing. And so this kind of actually bleeds into uh, what we're reading, because what, what I wanted to recommend is there's a, a fascinating a debate in a sense at National Review, which I, I love National Review. I've, I've been, I've followed National Review for, for years. On one hand, you have Jonah Goldberg and you have David French, who's writing some, I think, great stuff about this uh, and arguing kind of what I've been talking about. And on the other hand, you have, uh, is it Andrew Andrew McCarthy, is that right? Andrew McCarthy? Yes. That's uh, I always when I hear Andrew McCarthy, I think of that that snotty rich kid in the old John Hughes movies from the eighties. No, and, actually, you know, actually, I thought about that because you mentioned uh, uh, no, Andrew McCarthy was the nice, nice rich kid. Ah, okay, there you go. See, uh, the the um, the uh, snotty rich kid was um, uh, James Spader. James Spader, exactly. So, yes. but anyway, there are a bunch of articles that have been written. A couple in particular I wanted to mention. The Jonah Goldberg one is called um, uh, "Hedges of the Garden of Liberty." We'll have a link for that. Uh, but also, there was a, a fascinating article by uh, Josh Barrow. This was from Business Insider, and I talked about this on the on the Facebook site this week. Barrow argues that one of the reasons why there's not more outrage on the right about this whole Trump corruption thing in many areas is that the Clintons actually normalized a lot of this in part through the Democrats basically kind of falling all over themselves to try to justify Clinton corruption. And so it's kind of like, well, this, if this is what you do, this is what you do. Now, I don't know if that's 
you know, I don't know how much I buy that entirely, certainly, but uh, there, there may be something to it. And it's uh, it's worth reading. Definitely. that. Well, and and uh, Jonah, Jonah Goldberg makes sort of a lot of the, the same points that this was a, a trail sort of worn by Clinton. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. certainly. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, by the same token, I, I would say you should read the Andrew McCarthy stuff too. Uh, he's a, a federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, and interestingly, if if you've been following him for a while, um, he was not always in the place that he is now, um, uh, in, in terms of of the validity of of the investigation. I mean, I think initially there was a lot of he was writing. Look, as a federal prosecutor, uh, I think if there's smoke, there's probably fire. Uh, and, and he has sort of moved from that position. And, and I think particularly uh, the last couple weeks he's had pieces, which, which this is fascinating, that the mainstream media has absolutely refused or failed to cover, all of the uh, stroke uh, page texts. Um, and, and you can set aside whatever you think about Donald Trump. Um, there's, there's a lot of sort of troubling stuff in those, in those texts. Um, so I, I think... That's that's well worth worth reading uh, also, and, and I would say also look congratulations to National Review for I mean not being yeah. monolithic uh-huh. on this on this issue. I Absolutely, mean, this is uh, I think that's that's a good thing um, about a, a publication that's uh, you know about ideas and so forth that you can have two views on something. Yeah, if you had to pick one uh, conservative publication, it's my friends on the left, you had to pick one conservative publication to to read and, you know, you don't want to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, I would say National Review would be uh, would be an, an excellent choice. Now, I've uh, I have, sometimes I take great issue, certainly, with them, understandably. The McCarthy pieces, especially, I've been finding very difficult to get through because I just think he's just essentially sold out. But that's, you know, I, I work my way through them uh, because I think that it's that it's an important perspective. And so, uh, so yeah. Uh, what do you have for us this week, Jay? Well, you know, I, this is sort of a, it's not a, it's not a what I'm reading. Um, uh, but I just want to share, uh, uh, last week I attended the, uh, Sixth Circuit Judicial Conference in uh, oh, Nashville, right. Tennessee, uh, and it was a load of loads of fun. Um, uh, and I, I just want to—I don't even know how to express this well, but it, this is these are events that uh, I think inspire greater confidence in uh, our judiciary in our in our country. It's it's sort of a confab of all the various judges, federal judges, uh, state judges come too sometimes. Um, in the in the circuit, which is uh, Michigan, Ohio, uh, West Virginia, or, uh, Kentucky, and uh, Tennessee, um, and and you do you have a, a lot of great speakers. Uh, the keynote speaker uh, was uh, John Meacham, historian. Oh yeah, great guy. Uh, yeah, uh, who was who was really good and, and talking about sort of the parallels of of uh, Trump uh, and uh, Andrew Jackson and not so not so parallels of Trump and Andrew Jackson. Um, so that was that was really fun. Uh, Elena Kagan was supposed to be there. She usually shows up. Uh, she ditched us this time. Um, I'm not sure what exactly you know her her excuse was, but um, you know. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, I, I just to the extent that any of these materials are available online, and I can try to see if see if they are. Um, it's it's really uh, it, it's it's really good, and and this is sort of a. 
what you get there is sort of people coming from a lot of different perspectives, but they are there with the sort of a serious commitment uh, to uh, to the law and and to justice. And um, I think it's it's refreshing. It is always to me it's it's an inspiring event, and it's also uh, a a humbling event. Of uh, I go there, and um, you know you really sort of you're confronted with folks who are just true geniuses. Um, not, that's not a knock on you, Mike, but no, you know. no, no. I, and I, 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 gotta, I gotta say <laughs> listeners, I, Jay was, Jay was kind of giving me live updates from this thing and, uh, uh, far too many, I would say of the, I am not worthy type variety, yeah, because I yeah, would say, I, mean, I kept on telling Jay and I firmly believe this. I say he can stand with any of them. I'd put him up against Elena Kagan. I'd like to see that. Uh, that would be, that would be I, interesting. I, but I uh, held my own against uh, a, a former uh, Democrat attorney general who was my uh, dinner companion. Yeah. I have no doubt. Uh, and uh, he was former governor, uh, gubernatorial candidate and senatorial candidate and and really a, a, a charming man. Um, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's wonderful. We also and I, I want to just throw this in as part of the you know excursions that you could go on. Um, and also, this is not taxpayer funded. Uh, my firm paid for it. Um, but uh, um, we toured uh, the Hermitage, uh, Andrew Jackson's uh, home. And there, I I, th- I thought there were there were some really funny Trumpian kind of parallels, just in sort of personalities. Their tour guide was telling us how famously Jackson had had difficulty staffing his cabinet because you know Jackson had uh-huh. sort of a, a temper a temper, and uh, people would quit or get fired sort of uh, spur of the moment. And this was something that this was kind of the first time that this sort of thing had happened in American history. We had this this much turnover. Uh, but the other thing that was that was uh, wonderful was during the Hermitage, uh, Jackson was one of the was I believe at the time the richest man to ever become president, uh, and he he had painted instead of like he wanted the, the place to look absolutely grand and very luxurious, um, but but at the same time he did it kind of on the cheap. So they had like these wood wood panels that he wanted to look like marble, but so he just everything painted like marble, um, and so anyway there was there was very much this. Again, there's sort of a Trumpian ego thing huh. at, at, at work there, but it was it was absolutely fascinating. And uh, if you're in Nashville, you should check that out. And um, uh, yeah, Nashville was, was a fun city too. So yeah, absolutely. I've been I love Nashville uh, without without a doubt. Well, that's great. And I'm not a country music fan. I'm- Mike, you could we we could do that a story another day. About yeah, definitely. No, yeah, certainly not. Uh, hey, you know, folks. Before we go, again, just a reminder: please help us out by taking the super quick and easy survey. You'll find at survey.libsyn. That's l-i-b-s-y-n dot com slash politics guys. We would really appreciate it. And again, I'll put that uh, URL in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. And of course, your support is what keeps the show going. We really appreciate it. And you know how to support us if you want. Go to politicsguys.com slash support or just go right to politicsguys.com and click on support in the main menu. Subscribing to the show also really does help, as does sharing episodes with your friends, followers, uh, whatever, enemies, whoever. Really, it doesn't really matter. Um, Anyway, and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.